0: Good morning, everyone. If you could turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 14. We'll be camping out pretty much in John chapter 1, the entirety of our time together. And the reason is, is because here we are. It's Christmas. We've officially entered the Christmas season and um, I recently got to spend some sweet time with my family decorating our home and our Christmas tree. And uh, now is the time where other people begin listening to the kind of music that I've been listening to since August, which is, is very validating. It's very encouraging, finally, that other people are singing jingle bells. Uh, and, and something striking was recently uh, revealed to me by, by someone else. I um, thought I would share it. If, if someone asked you, To tell them what Christmas was about without being able to use the words star, angel, shepherds, wise men, manger, Mary, Joseph, stable, birth, giving, baby, or even Jesus. Would you be able to do it? And you may be tempted to say absolutely not. But believe it or not, the most awe striking Christmas account that we find in the Bible is in fact the shortest account that we have. And it doesn't use a single word in that list. That account is found in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Please follow along as I read aloud. The passage for our meditation today, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have here the full Christmas story. And it's found in four simple words within that passage. And it is simply this, the word became flesh. This is by far one of the simplest and most efficient accounts of the Christmas story ever given. In fact, I I genuinely don't know if it's actually grammatically possible to simplify it any further. John is an expert craftsman with words. The book of John is written so that the wisest of professors could barely plumb its depths, like that of holding a candle into the darks of the deepest crags of the ocean floor. And yet, a child is able to, upon hearing the poetic brushstrokes of John's words, understand the plainest of his meanings. It's a fascinating book. And so here, in John's prologue to his gospel account, he will begin to unpack the profoundest of truths that are able to shudder the soul, yet they are written in the plainest language. And in the same way, the evangelist John here is such a master with words that uh, the simple statement that he gives is not merely the simplest account of Christmas. But it is the most astounding, heart-rapturing account of Christmas. Yet, often we pass right by it. Often, like the vastness of the waves of the ocean, Christmas is actually far less captivating and awe-striking than it ought to be. It can often become not just lacking in its magnitude but rather it can at times become quite old hat, normal, even boring. Sure, we get excited about the lights and the presents and the cookies and the songs, and I get that warm, fuzzy kitten-in-my-chest feeling every time I get some warm apple cider. But these things, as beautiful and joyful as they are, they are not Christmas. Does the true point of Christmas really stir us in our depths? Does it leave us in awe? Familiarity indeed breeds boredom, doesn't it? Well, there's a man standing overlooking the harbor as the waves roll in. He stares with mouth agape, seemingly in shock of something. His son approaches him to see if he is well, yet the father continues to stare in awe. The son finally gains his father's attention and asks him what it is that he is staring at. And the father begins to describe the beauty of the billowing waves. He tells him his son of the shimmer of the gleam, gleaming sun sparking in flames upon the distant water's horizon he baffles at the thought of the great rocks that are lifted and laid to rest again, thrown as if weightless by the rushing tides. And to this his son replies, Dad, it's just water. The father smiles kindly to his son. Breathes a deep sigh and replies, Oh son, my son. The ocean's glory has never changed, nor her might diminished. She has never spat back out the ships that she has crushed to splinters, nor has she repented of the lives of thousands that she has taken. My son, your lack of awe does not show that the ocean has no glory. Rather, it shows that you have no love for her, because you do not truly know her, and you think yourself deserving of her. our Apostle John will have no such boredom from us when it comes to the awe-striking reality of Christmas. The first 18 verses of John's Gospel account are an awe-inspiring prologue to his account of, of Jesus' life and ministry. And in this prologue, we will find John's Christmas account, and it will be written in an absolutely shameless way to leave the reader stunned, captivated, and in awe of Christmas by four simple points. And so this is all that I have for you today. Four points of awe at Christmas. I pray that the Spirit of God will allow His Word To fulfill the author's original intent. Our absolute awe. At the word made flesh. This brings us to our first point. And the word became flesh. I want to start off by calling attention to the interesting title here that John gives. He says the word became flesh. Not the truth, not the Son of God, nor the Ancient of Days. No, he chose to say the Word. What is even more peculiar about this is that he did not provide an explanation of what he meant. Rather, he just begins throwing this title, the Word, about. As if we will know what he's talking about. Therefore, we must assume that he expected his audience would understand. This is important because he chose this word intentionally for the purpose of captivating his audience and leaving them without a doubt at his purpose in writing. We must first consider then this word, the word, logos in the original Greek. It's helpful to understand a basic overview of what this word means. Firstly, it meant, as the word of man is the overflow of his heart, So, the word of God is the expression of the very heart of who God is. And what he is doing. But not only this, it carried with it also the sense of God's will in action. For God's logos, word... To be spoken was as certain as if what was said would already be done. For the Lord's word to come was equal in value for his will to be done. So John grabs the attention of the Jews and says, Hey, do you remember in that Old Testament narrative when we see the word of God? That is who I speak of. but also he's writing to Gentiles. You see, the the word logos had a meaning in Greek philosophy as well. Interestingly enough, the logos in the world of philosophy was this distant, uncaring, impersonal, organizer, kind of creator of all things. In essence, it meant the impersonal, organizing wisdom of the cosmos. This would be the kind of general idea that there is a God, though it's very impersonal and he's certainly a distant one. It could be considered similar to what Einstein admitted when he said, of course there's a creator, but we could never know him. And so John uses this title quite intentionally to allow his whole audience a bright and open window into understanding what he's talking about. He says to the Greeks, you know that God you're always debating about and pondering, that creator thing, that is who I speak of. But he doesn't simply just say the word and leave us without explanation. We come to our verse here in verse 14 within a context. And that will help us gain an understanding of the mind of John when he says the word became flesh. Look back, if you will, to verses 1 through 4 in John 1. I'll read aloud so that we can gain a better understanding of what is John's mind and perspective in this word. He says, in the beginning So here we see John's intent. This word about which, he's, about which he speaks is that whom was present in the beginning. So, what does the beginning mean? Well, he's seeking to utilize the very same words at the opening of the Bible. This is no accident. John seeks to call his reader's attention back all the way to the beginning. That this word that he is announcing is indeed not something or someone new. Rather, this word is one who is utterly ancient. In fact, he is the ancient. John wants us to take our minds and walk them back as far as they can go. So allow with me, if you don't mind, the clock in your heart's eye to spin the dial all the way back. Back before the advance of modern technology. Back before the squirrels had phone lines to run on. Back before man could conceive of taking to the air and soaring in the skies like birds. Take your mind back, back, back before roads connected cities and towns. Back before the great tower was built called Babel. Where the Lord scattered man about and confused his language. Back before the first thorn ever pricked the hand of the laborer. Back even before the beautiful perfection of intimacy in marital delight was slandered by the deceitfulness of sin. All the way back, 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 back your mind goes and finally you come to a rest. Not as far back as you could go. Or as far back as one ought but as far back as our finite mind will allow us to. And still, you're not there, says John. Further back, as far as you like, he says, is the Word. A good way to put this is, there was never a time when the Word was not. There in the eternal existence, when God Only and alone was there and nothing else was except for him. He says that in the beginning, eternity past, was the word and the word was with God. So he says, not only is this word so far back beyond your imagination, but he was with the invisible God. This word was in the presence of the one that alone is immortal and stands in unapproachable light, whom no one ever has seen or ever can see, according to 1 Timothy 6, 16. The great and the mighty one, the creator of all that is, all that was, and all that is to come, who is the utter perfect being. He was with this word. Well, then John decides that we better be careful not to misunderstand him. And so he tells us not just that the Word was in the beginning, and not just that the Word was with God, but the Word was God. Now, many thousands of souls are we indebted to for standing on the firm theological ground that we now call dirt beneath our feet. For such a statement that he was with God and he was God, though easy for many of us to swallow, was a great choking hazard for many and a great contest for heresy through the centuries. But here, John's claim that the word was with God Meaning, intimately folded into him as the folds of a garment are intimately close and together. He was face to face with this God. As if one breathing the very air and breath of God. Perfectly and intimately united in communion with God. We see here that there is a distinction between the word and God. Yet John will not let us believe that there are two. Rather, he makes plain, not easy, but plain, that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Back to verse 14. The Word became flesh. Why does he use the title, the Word? Because John wants us to know that he is speaking of God himself. The word, this is the one true God. On the basis of his pre-existence to creation. And equal existence with God. The word is distinct and yet is fully God. This is indeed the purpose of John's entire gospel. As he tells us in chapter 20 verses 30 through 31. To convince you that this man, Jesus, is God. But John does not simply want us to know that the Word is God. It's not his main point, necessarily. For that would be only half of the story. So he makes this staggering Christmas proclamation. The Word became flesh. Let us spend then some time understanding and meditating on the immensity of this claim that John makes. Firstly, what did it mean that God became? This is terribly important, because John is saying that this divine being, this creator by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created, became. Now, what John is meaning by becoming is very significant. And so I will ask some help from Augustine here. He says, it, meaning the incarnation, was performed not by changing what he was, but by assuming what he was not, meaning the word continued to be the word. He continued to be God. He did not turn into something else. That is not what John is saying here. He's not saying that the word stepped out of his eternal deity like a cosmic comma on his nature. This is actually a track to heresy. For if Christ had ceased in his deity in order to become something new, for instance, only man or if his deity stooped to become some kind of mixture hybrid between God and man, though not fully either, then there is no peace with God. Here's why. If Jesus is not God or became not God for a time, then he has lost his ability to be our mediator to God. This would be like a translator seeking to intermediate between one that speaks German and one that speaks Spanish by learning Latin. If he does not speak either language, but a strange mix of both, no true communication can take place. He is not a mixture between God and man. Rather, he is fully God and has taken on the nature of man. His deity did not change. For any attempt to change, the eternal unchanging one would be like hurling snow at the sun. Change cannot meet nor reach nor near that which is unchangeable. Why is this important? Because God is, by his very essence, by his very being, the unchangeable one. He is the right holder of the title, I am. A title that Jesus, the God-man, claims for his own in John chapter 8, verse 58. He is the self-existent one. He receives his being from no other. Rather, he is the self-existent being. John says it this way in verse 4. In him was life. Meaning he did not receive life from anyone. Rather he is the fountain from which all life springs. This means that God is what theologians call immutable. It's simply a fancy way of saying that because he is not dependent on any other. Because he in his existence and being does not rely on anything else. He can not change. Thus, when he declares his name to Moses in Exodus 3, he stoops to our finite language and limited understanding that we might grasp at knowing him and says, I am that I am. Therefore, a statement such as the word became by its very existence, should cause our minds to boggle. For this is to say that the eternal word, he that was as he always has been, in perfect being and existence, has taken something onto himself. He has taken the fullness of flesh, meaning man's soul and man's body shrouding his deity in full humanity. He has become a man, and yet, though veiled in flesh, his deity is not changed nor affected. Just as the sun amidst an eclipse loses none of its glorious light, so when the word was veiled in flesh, his deity was left unchanged. This union of man and God in one man is called the Incarnation. And it is what Christmas is all about. Still today, possibly the best summary of this is from the Chalcedonian definition. Um, I'm going to summarize it because I believe it could be helpful. It says, He is fully God and fully man, eternal in being and born as a man through Mary, having within himself Two natures, unmixed, unchanged, perfectly unified, and yet entirely distinct. The two distinct natures in no way canceling the other out. Rather, each nature being preserved in its fullness, coming together to be the one person and being. He is one person. The eternal word being within himself, two natures, both man and God. Did you see the simplicity and yet the audacity of the words of John here? What would become of my life if I would let my mind marvel on this? What would become of my Christmas if I gave this season from my heart to meditate on the vastness of this God? Oh, what a life would my heart bring forth if I would but taste of the worthiness of he that is the word become flesh. For a moment, dwell with me on some of the implications here. God has never known difficulty nor resistance to his will. For nothing can stay his hand, according to Daniel 4.35, 4.35, and he perfectly establishes and accomplishes his will of which no one may thwart, according to Psalm 115.3, Ephesians one eleven, Job forty-two four. yet he that has never known difficulty, never known flaw, nor limitation, subjected himself to the weakness of human muscles, which in the first of his days and weeks, he would have been in so little control over, that his mother, whom he fashioned the mind of, would have to wrap him in swaddling clothes so that he would not startle himself awake with his infant arm reflexes. He that dwells in eternal glory, With eyes that see all things at all times perfectly. Things visible and invisible. He before whom all things are laid bare and plain. Took upon himself the weakness of an infant's eyes. That could see only as far as from the breast of his mother to her exhausted smile. He that holds all things together. While lying in a food trough, holding the finger of his adopted father, he holds together the molecules of his adopted father. The trough in which he lays, and the king who seeks to kill him. He holds the rotations of the stars and the moon ever in their place, all the while he lays sleeping in his mother's arms. Familiarity. It causes boredom. But these are the things that ought to set the heart afire. For they are worshipful, awe-striking meditations of one beginning to see the depth of what it means that the Word became flesh. What then is the significance of John's second point of awe? He says this, And he dwelt my insertion of he, and dwelt among us. Another word for that word dwelt is he tabernacled among us. Here John uses, again, some words very intentionally as he seeks to convey the depth of grandeur of his point. Why did he choose the word dwelt? And what is he saying that the word is doing? Well, he's utilizing that same word that is used in the Old Testament context for when someone Pitched their tent. So he is quite creatively saying that this word has tabernacled, pitched his tent somewhere. Now think and wonder with me for a moment on this. God is omnipresent, he is infinite, and there his fullness fills. All things. And yet nothing finite can contain him. His fullness of presence and attention. Is in all places at all times. Both being outside of time and space. Basically this means that he is fully present. And his full attention is given in all places at all times. Yet. God. Stoops to reveal himself in such a way that finite man can better comprehend and worship him. So we see many a time, particularly in the Old Testament, where his particular presence is called to attention. This is often called his Shekinah glory. It's, it's the visible and glorious radiant light of God's particular pleasure, and intimate presence. For example, at the conclusion of the building of the temple, in 2 Chronicles 7, God's glory descended upon the temple, showing His people, Israel, that His particular presence and pleasure was with them. And here, John uses the same language to draw our understanding to the particular presence of God In this word. John says here. That all of that. In the Old Testament. Was preparatory. It was all pointing to. Moving toward. This point in history. In Christ. The word. God has pitched his tent. Among us. Not in a temporal and changeable manner. But in. A permanent. Full way. He has made his dwelling. The second person of the Trinity is the very tabernacle of God, according to John chapter 2, verse 21. The word of God is the temple of the living God and he has not made his place in the unreachable heavens nor has he set himself in unapproachable light or behind the holiest of holies. He does not now keep sinful man away from his presence lest sinful man should die. Rather, he has sent his fullness of presence in the midst of man that he might himself die. That they might live forever with him. Do you see the significance of John's words in Christmas? He has tabernacled. He has dwelled not amidst the holiest of holies, but amidst the lowliest of lowlies, us. Which leads me to point of awe number three. So what might John be meaning by this? When he says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. There are a few possibilities. And um, I'm going to take a stance and you can feel free to disagree with me. What might John be having in mind here? Well, the apostle might indeed have the idea of Jesus' expressed Shekinah glory. The same glory that's referred to in the Old Testament. Could he be referring to when Jesus went upon that mount, bringing with him his closest circle, James, Peter, and John. And atop that mountain, Jesus allowed for a moment his deity, which is veiled by his flesh, to pierce through And he revealed a glimpse to these men of the radiance of glory that he knew with the Father before his incarnation. They saw a glimpse of the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Could this be what John is referring to? Possibly. Could he be referring to the glory of Jesus as referred to in chapter 2 of John in the wedding at Cana when he expresses what is his glorious works? This is seen also again in the resurrection of Lazarus from the tomb. Of which Jesus himself says, this will not end in death, but in the glory of God. Could John be saying, I have beheld his miracles? It's, it's possible. I, I'm, I'm going to think that it, though it could very well be those... I think it might be a little bit different. Because of his clarification, this is glory as of the only Son from the Father. It seems that this is a glory particularly found in Christ alone. They saw, meaning John, what was absolutely basic and simple to the testimony of Christ himself when he said, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. That they, meaning his disciples, beheld God's perfections in Christ. They have seen, by seeing Christ, the fullness of who God is. That in Christ's words, they have seen the Father. In Christ's actions, they have seen the Father. He has made the invisible God visible. Look with me at verse 18 here in this same chapter. Where John actually makes this point explicitly. No one has ever seen God. The only God. Who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has made the infinite. Boundless immeasurable, supreme, eternal, inexhaustible being, knowable and known. There was a historical event in the timeline of man where we beheld the glory of the second person of the Trinity of God and we have seen through Him the one and only Father. This alone should cause us to baffle, but He's not done yet. This leads us to our fourth point of awe. He is full of grace and truth. Here's the pinnacle. John has stretched our minds. He has held before us immense and eternal doctrines in simple terminology. He has sought to shock and awe us in the immensity of this Christmas reality. That the word became, put on the nature of man. Flesh. That in all of our innocent infirmities he bore. But now John gets to the heart of it. What is it that ought to leave us stunned? What is it that ought to bring the worship of every man, woman and child of this magnificent word bound in flesh? Because we have seen his glory and he is full of grace and truth. Why should that shock us? Think back with me, but one more time, and consider some descriptions of when man beheld some slight capacity of God's glory. Go with me into Isaiah 6, and we stand in a courtroom, high and lifted up beside the prophet Isaiah, before the pre incarnate Jesus Christ. And we watch as Isaiah crumples to the ground as if a dead man. We hear the thunderous cries of the perfect angelic creatures that God has specifically designed to cry out His glorious praise every moment. And the sound is so perfect and pure, that untouched by any sin or stain, that the words seem to slice right through our ears. Having never had our ears hear such pure and true worship of the infinitely glorious God... The ground beneath our feet shakes at the very foundations of the earth, seeking to bear up the weight of the presence of Yahweh. Our frail eyes can barely make sense of the reality that we behold, as if an ant peering into the full function of the human limbic system. And we hear in this account in Isaiah 6 of the experience of the man of God, The mouthpiece of God to his wayward people. This is the guy who receives revelation given to him intimately. This is God's guy. The representation of truth in the world. And what is Isaiah's experience in that moment? Utter horror. Terror. Unimaginable. As he stands in the very presence of his eternal God and he hears for the first time what true worship, pure worship of this Lord of glory is. And he realizes that the most beautiful and pure utterances that ever have crossed his lips describing who God is. He realizes that they are at best slanderous and diseased as the skin of a leper. And in this moment, just by being in the presence of the glory of God, Isaiah believes he is about to die. So he cries out, Woe is me! Quite literally, he's saying, My being is undone. I am being ripped apart because I have seen the glorious one. Fast forward with me. The word has come again. We see him in Revelation 9, 13, even given the name, the word. We see him in Revelation 6, 15 through 17. The world is being wrapped up. The wrath of God coming to fully express his glory in the final destruction of wickedness and death. And the people of earth who have rejected Christ cry out for the mountains to smash them to pieces. To hide them from what? His glory glory I encourage you to go look in the scriptures see watch where the glory of God rips into our world watch what happens when God's glory in his purity and might is expressed to sinful man and almost always what you will see is that these accounts are filled with horror So what is it that is so shocking about the way that John describes the beholding of Christ's glory? It's not a revelation filled with terror. It's not of the undoing of man. Rather, he says he is full of grace and truth. Christ could have come He could have become flesh and humbled himself to take the form of a human king and judge. He could have come in all of his perfection within his own righteousness to the absolute destruction of mankind but he came in swaddling clothes and poverty instead of armor. Here is where John astonishes us with the contrast that we have beheld God's glory. It's the glory of the only Son from the Father. And it's full of grace and truth. John wishes for all creatures of our God and King to see what he says in verse 16 where he describes us as receiving having grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's grace in the place of grace. When I remove grace from Him, what is in its place is grace. He wishes to utterly point to the fact that Christ poured out, utterly enveloped and satiated the souls of sinners with God's grace and truth. He who knew no sin was untouched by anything that was not fully pleasing and delightful to God became sin for us. That as he brings the sin of man into himself in the very presence of God he then takes the fullest measure Of the judgment of God. Drinks the cup of wrath. Until it is parched. And it is he in the presence of God. That is torn apart. The word became flesh. That those that are but flesh. Might be freed from their weakness. And iniquity. Because he bore it. And to taste instead. Of divine righteousness. John is absolutely enamored by the glory of Christ. And can do nothing but burst with rich, simple, and passionate language. Why? Because he has seen the glory of God. He has seen the glory of the only Son of God. He has beheld the eternal word in his flesh. And in this word there is life. The only life. And John displays the glory of Christ our God before us. That all who hear might stand in awe of the Son of God. And believing in his name might have life in him. According to John twenty thirty through 31 This is the story of Christmas. This is what it's all about. It's a time when our hearts get a chance to renew our awe of what we've seen over and over and time and time again. It is to leave us once again shocked by the glory of God in His magnitude and our finitude. Captivate us by His glory and our unworthiness. This is Christmas. Let us be as the young, ma- not be as the young man who stares at the beauty of the ocean and neither understands nor worships. Because he does not understand her and believes himself to be deserving of her. Let it be said, instead of us, like that of Lucy, in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian, As Lucy speaks to the representation of Christ, the great lion Aslan, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. To which he replies, that is because you are older, little one. She then asks, not because you are? He responds to her, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This Christmas, would you stand in wonder and amazement? That Christmas should pass without our awe and wonder is to miss the very reason and purpose Of our celebration of it. Oh. What child. Is this. Meditate deeply. Unceasingly. On the glorious good news. Of the word. Became. Flesh. Father God. We thank you. For your word. Lord your word. That you have given as a testimony. To the word. Lord we are but. Infants. In our seeking to understand you. And yet you have made. Your self known. Lord we stand. In awe of the magnitude of your infinite being bound finite. Lord, we stand in awe at the person of Christ who has made you known. And shown you to be full of grace. And truth, Oh, Lord, would you let us worship. Lord, stir deeply in our hearts of those of us who have made Christmas that which it is not. Oh, would you steer, stir deeply in our hearts those of us who have heard the Christmas story again and again and again. Lord, would we stand in awe as your servant John intends at the magnitude and the humble nature of you. Your word become flesh. We pray that you would bless the rest of our corporate worship together, that it might be honoring to you, that we might taste of the glory that awaits for those in Christ Jesus for all eternity. We pray these things in the Son's name. Amen.
1: Child